And as things fell apart, nobody paid much attention. Talking heads. Hello, and welcome to Brett Easton Hell Yes, the show where every week we take a deep dive into one of the works of former literary it boy, voice of a generation, and online shit stirrer, Brett Easton Ellis. I'm your host, Katie Wright. We will jump into my conversation with Leslie Lee III of Struggle Session and actor, producer, podcaster, Jonathan Daniel Brown in just a moment. But before we do, I just wanted to clarify something up top. Uh, If you're a listener to Struggle Session, you know that until recently, Jonathan Daniel Brown was one of the co-hosts and he recently left the show to uh, go start his own project. Uh, And we make no reference to that in this episode. That's because we recorded in early March before JDB had decided to leave the show. Uh, And so that's why. (laughs) Uh, But Struggle Session is still going strong. I still highly recommend you listen to it. And JDB has a Kickstarter going for his next project. You can find out more about that by going to Kickstarter and searching for JDB is starting a new podcast. All right. So now let's get into the episode. I had a really great conversation with these guys, and I'm really excited that they came on. So let's do it. Joining me today is actor, writer, producer, Jonathan Daniel Brown. Jonathan, hello. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you for being here. And also with us, uh, writer and journalist, Leslie Lee the Third. Leslie, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Leslie, you actually reached out to me on Twitter to express your interest in being on this podcast, which was very exciting for me because I had been listening to your podcast and I was enjoying it a lot and I didn't know you were following me. (laughs) Well, you know, um, I love Brett Easton Ellis and it's nice to see somebody do a podcast about his work because, of course, the Brett Easton Ellis podcast is not about his work. It's about him um, getting into lots of trouble for saying bad things about bad movies basically (laughs) and everybody uh, canceling him every week that's what his show is more about so it's nice that we can you know focus on the art and not the artist on this (laughs) yeah although i do like to focus also on the artist on this show (laughs) he's an interesting guy (laughs) yeah he's very interesting do you leslie do you listen to the ready stanellis podcasts yes i do I, i really really enjoy it i like it i um I, I'm I'm a subscriber, and actually, it's funny when we when I, from Patreon, right? On our struggle session Patreon, we subscribe to the Brady Snell's podcast because that way I can listen to it while having to pay. It comes from the business instead of my own. <laughs> you put it on the company card. Put it on the company card, and then somebody got mad and unsubscribed from our podcast because they saw we supported Brady Snell's. It was like I knew you all were just a bunch of gamer gators. I'm like, I don't think. Brett, you still listen to the gamer game. Yeah, that was that was my girlfriend, by the way, who did that. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> that is really funny. Brett is a lot of things, but not a gamer gamer. No. <laughs> Although I do think if he was more like tapped into video games. I think he might be a gamer gainer. Possibly, possibly. Remember, I stepped, I stepped my toes in that shit just because I was getting annoyed with some people. Like the thing is, if you if you're somebody who likes to. Uh, kind of hang on the edge of the Overton window like he does, uh, 
you're going to end up stepping in shit when you see something exciting on the counterculture pop up without doing your full homework. I mean, you're like, oh, cool. Like there's something countercultural. I'm in. And then you're like, oh, shit. Uh, that's not what I signed up for. And then you got to skedaddle out of there and find the next thing. It's kind of tough, but uh, when it, it's uh, it's hard to be a shit stirrer nowadays because yeah. there's just so much stir. There's just so much shit. I mean, it's almost impossible. You need like a full machine to churn it all together. Um, at the risk of sounding like a fool, I don't know what the Overton window is. Can you explain that to me? Uh, Overton window is just the um what's the acceptable political discourse basically ah, uh, okay. so between left and right and of in america it's extremely narrow i think as, as most people know because we don't even have like health care which is something that you know <laughs> right wingers in the uk you know support everybody having health care so our overton window in the u.s is very narrow and leaning far very far right to yeah. the right mm -hmm. but People use the term to reference someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because she's opening or moving the window to the left by talking about things like universal health care in a very impassioned, in, um, uncompromising way. So when people talk about the Overton window, it's usually at least what people on the left are saying is that, you know, the Democratic Party needs to go full bore towards the left to open up the window and move it more over because other because if you just talk about you know compromise and working together with the right you never change the window the right it just keeps moving further and further <laughs> to the right and the beautiful thing the beautiful thing about how crazy everything's going is that our billionaire class seems to be doing a lot of the work for us howard schultz and jeff bezos have personally moved the overton window more left than anybody i know yes. <laughs> schultz with his his goofy ass people of wealth president campaign decides to sell some shitty books or scare the Democrats and then wing of the right. And now Bezos is announcing to the world that his dick's on the internet. He's the world's <laughs> richest man. He's got uh, workers that are basically slaves. And here he is talking about his cock to everybody. Like, that's where we are. <laughs> it is really beautiful to watch these things in action to, like, see the, uh, the horrible billionaire overlords that we all live under just, like, <laughs> fucking shooting themselves yes. in the foot. <laughs> oh, it's great. Uh, okay. <laughs> so very educational. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask you guys about your history with Brett Easton Ellis coming into this podcast. Um, Leslie, can I start with you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my first real experience with Brett Easton Ellis started with um, this book, American Psycho. I saw the film. I wanted to know more about this, you know, Patrick Bateman guy. You know, I didn't want to be too quick to judge him based on, you know, that 90-minute portrayal. I wanted to see if there was more going on with him. And so I checked out the book, and I found out, you know, Patrick, Patrick maybe he's not that bad a guy. And <laughs> I just kept reading more Brett, and I read, I read through all his bibliography in about six or seven months, and he quickly became... Uh, besides Philip K. Dick and maybe H.P. Lovecraft, my favorite um, writer. So I'm a huge, huge um, Brett Easton Ellis fan. Love all his stuff, love his work. Um, uh, it's just, I what I love most about him is, you know, I'm someone who didn't grow up in anything, what, any, no connection to wealth whatsoever. So his portrayal of wealth and to see that, him to show that rich people are, you know, miserable scumbags just 
brought something you know real joy to my heart to see that rich people are you know like just completely shitty people who hate themselves as much as everybody else hates them like i really enjoyed that from brett he's uh he he's uh we've called him on the show like our one of our favorite class traders because he tells us what's really going on in the upper class and tells us how shitty it is yeah he does make wealth seem extremely unappealing not not that he necessarily makes poverty seem more appealing no he doesn't but he, he, he it's nice to see like the other side how the other side lives and to see that it's awful pointless um, joyless, loveless, and without any merit whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, and JDB, what's your history with Brett? So my history started when I first saw American Psycho, the movie, uh, Mary Heron's masterpiece. And after that, I immediately found out it was a book. So picked up American Psycho, read that. Then I zipped through less than zero. Uh, and, you know, we were off to the races. And I, I sent I, when I was like 15 or 16, I was going through like a real... Uh, Gen Xer, edgy dude, literary face. So I was like reading Brett Easton Ellis. I was reading a lot of Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, I was reading also some of the more like new sincerity stuff, like a little bit of David Foster Wallace. And then, um, oh God, why am I already blanking out on his name? The guy who wrote a heartbreaking work of Dave Eggers. I was reading Dave mm -hmm. Eggers and McSweeney's and shit. Like I was trying to go through the whole gamut. Uh, and what's interesting to me is that they all come from Gen X. And what Brett Easton Ellis did that the other Gen X writers did was he rejected a lot of that sincerity. And he rejected, a, he, he's a very cynical voice in, in an era that, while the 90s were definitely cynical, were sold as optimistic. And him and him and Palahniuk specifically, uh, now that we know that they're both gay men, which is also very interesting too, they're, they're like hyper-masculine, uh, very... Uh, dark uh, uh, contempt for privilege, but also the the idea that it's infectious and consuming. Um, by it, I mean wealth. Uh, the idea of being rich, like whether when you're born in it, when you're soaked in it, you're doomed from the start. I grew up in L.A. and I know a lot of rich kids, and uh, I know a lot of characters like like the ones in Less Than Zero. I mean, maybe not to the extremes of of that, and especially not the sequel imperial bedrooms but uh you know i know a lot of real major la fuck-ups and like the truth is the higher up the higher up the wealth chain they are the more likely they're gonna be a bateman you know like i know people like that not not in the whole you know carving up the homeless and sex workers thing but i know people like that man that's uh disturbing here <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot, you know, I'm from, I'm from L.A. And, you know, I've, yeah. I've worked in uh, entertainment for like 10 years. And like there's just it's filled with lunatics. It's filled with <laughs> narcissists. It's filled with opportunists. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of his characters are leeches. You know, they are they just suck everything out and try to consume as much as possible. And they're emblematic of the late stage capitalist system we've been spiraling down to the bottom of for the last well, 40 they, years. They, were, they, were, they aren't emblematic. They were prophetic. They were prophetic. Yeah. It was early. Brett Easton Ellis was an early adopter, early warning sign of a uh, late stage capitalism. Mm. He's been telling us 
what's coming since the 80s, you know, when everybody was still, you know, it was morning in America. He was telling us, like, no, it's not. All these people are fucking scumbags. I know them. All the movers and shakers on Wall Street, all the people in Hollywood, they're all awful. And we've found out that that's all true. It just took us uh, 20 or 30 years. You know, the 80s and 90s, I was watching You've Got Mail recently, a mediocre rom-com with, uh, you know, Tom Hanks. But the whole plot of the movie is basically that the small business guy uh, is like the loser and he needs to just give in to big corporatism. Like the future is global big business. And that's like a major theme of the, it's like if Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat was a rom-com. I mean, it's a bad movie. Dave Chappelle can't even save it. But there's so much, especially in, in, in music, literature, and media from the 80s and the 90s that glorify excessive wealth that, that you know, it, it, it'd be, it's more normal to grow up wanting to be rich than it is to be a good person. And so, like... When I found these books that said, no, actually, like, rich people are scum, it was very validating to me. <laughs> it was very like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm not crazy. Like, all of the really successful, awful people actually are bad. And that was a, a nice little wake-up call. Uh, I do think the cynicism, um, you know, a lot of people are, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily know if, if it's palatable you know, it's it's like it's like uh, I don't want to sound like a fucking like uh, like a MAGA dude, but like there's like a a red pill you take where you like or some kind of like thing where you like the, the, when you go down one of these books, you go down this fucked up psychoactive journey through like bad minds, and uh, it's a tough thing to it's a tough thing to process. I mean, his work isn't for everybody. No, it's definitely not. <laughs> um, Leslie, you so you said that it was prophetic um, that like he was maybe one of the first voices saying these like Wall Street guys are shitty, right? Yeah. Um, but I so I was a baby when American Psycho came out, so I don't have a good sense of um, uh, the cultural context of it. But wasn't Wall Street like a decade earlier and like a very popular story about? Uh, how like all the guys on Wall Street are terrible? Well, it, it's contextualized because when you when you think about it, when the sequel came out, like it was more like a heroic story. So um, it wasn't a decade earlier; it was like a couple years earlier. The uh, oh, okay, the, wait, wait, the, I think the, that was eighty six. Greed yeah. is good. Oh. Yeah, Wall Street was eighty seven, and you know that film like does kind of make still makes it look cool, you know, like like Oliver Stone point. Stone's port, of course, was to criticize, but it, it, we, when you look at, you know, even how we think about like fi big financial people now, like it took a while for it took the crash of 2000, you know, eight for people to really start trying to see these people in finance as the enemies, but you still have the Democratic Party praising them, praising like people on, on, on Wall Street. And Bryce Nellis was like, came out and basically said, no, all these people are rapists and serial killers, or just as bad. Basically, it's kind of what he the two the idea that he conflates 
um, with that concept of Wall Street. I mean, because in the 80s, like it was the, uh, the age of Wall Street. There might have been some pushback, certainly Oliver Stone, he's a left, he's a good leftist. So he pushed back on it with his film. But like, I don't know if people really got the point. And so it and people didn't, unfortunately, people didn't really get the point with American Psycho either. They thought it was about something completely different. But he was when he was really trying to say, no, actually, just like all these people in Wall Street are bad. Not that sexism is good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this was like a really, a really controversial book when it came out and especially before it came out. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it uh, and Brett talks about this a lot and you can kind of tell it was deeply painful for him experience for him because he puts out lesson zero it becomes this massive uh, success while he was in college and he didn't really know it like he didn't right. really experience it because he was still going to school and so when by the time you know american psycho comes out he's ready for you know his real big debut he's partied in new york he's been he's got, done all his things he's enjoyed some success as an author he puts it out and before it before it even comes out like people are protesting it people are calling him a sexist a racist a homophobe prominent people who haven't read the book yet you know people like Gloria Steinem are condemning his work before it's even come out and his publisher drops it actually before it comes out and he was deeply hurt by this because like his whole point was to condemn you know the sexism the racism the homophobia the anti-semitism that he portrays in the book and you can tell like it it kind of is what has turned him into kind of a free speech warrior to this day because he was someone who was actually actively censored just because liberals um, did not understand what he was doing and didn't try to one of, one of the most frustrating things for me as a creative is and it one of the most frustrating things for me as a creative and as a writer is the lack of understanding from modern audiences that portrayal, and I guess not modern audiences, for audiences for as long as time, that portrayal and endorsement are not the same things. And, uh, you know, you saw in the late 80s, early 90s, we had the Democrats. I mean, you know, there was Tipper Gore and rap music. There was, you know, uh, there was like the the, the horrible... Uh, like the, the slasher movies that were freaking out parents like people were legitimately scared of their children seeing like the old Freddy Krueger movies like there was a real uh, moral panic. I mean, we were people kid parents were afraid that Dungeons and Dragons were making their kids worship Satan like the 80s were weird. And uh, it's interesting reading, you know, because we did an episode about Brett Easton Ellis for our podcast, a, you know, a few months ago, and I read American Psycho again. And what's really interesting is that Right now in 2019, we're sort of at the tail end of the 80s nostalgia phase, and now we're entering the 90s nostalgia phase. And both of these nostalgia phases in media don't really – they don't re they're not what I remember about the 90s. And I'm, I'm certainly – it's certainly probably not what Brett Easton Ellis remembers about the 80s, what he sees on TV when, when you know, there's another remake or there's another, uh, you know – there's a lot of pandering to grow in, in a similar way that uh, boomers were pandered to for growing up in the 50s. 
You, uh, you know, I there I, I would recommend everybody check out this song by this band called The Vaselines. They're famous for being uh, Kurt Cobain's favorite band. And I got to interview them once, and they have a song called I Hate the 80s. And the <laughs> lyrics go, uh, you don't know, you weren't there. Um, I hate the 80s because the 80s were shit. And I talked to the writer the, the, <laughs> about this, and he would basically say, like, no, the 80s were fucking garbage. It wasn't just like Rubik's Cubes and breakdancing. Like, it was awful for everyone who had to live through it. Uh, you pulled a bullet in the beetle, you started beating people, a wall that wasn't there, a war that led nowhere. Like, it sucked. It wasn't just about Duran Duran. It was, you know, an awful, awful time uh, for most people who lived through it. So this nostalgia and, you know, Brace and Ellis really captured this in the book like he really his the book is often described as like the dark underside of the 80s but like this is the overside this is what the 80s were yeah that's a good point uh it does seem like the 80s were a time of like a blatant shittiness going completely unpunished as we uh, see that's my image of it yeah as we see in the virginia um where, where i live the virginia um political scene now is like apparently every you know white person in the er in the early 80s was doing blackface so yeah. <laughs> and it's just it's, as someone who as someone who grew up in LA it is I mean besides like when I grew up you there were you would always hear about like kids getting in trouble for like dressing up like the Jackson 5 or like dressing up like uh like Kanye that's like all the you know like modern rappers but like this is I mean, it's just Virginia, I, I know, is has such a strong history with the Confederacy. So like the fact that uh, the, the Northam, I didn't even know that that medical schools had yearbooks. Yeah. That's even weird. Like, who, like, <laughs> like you're in your like late 20s by that yeah time. you're like you pushing still, 30 now like <laughs> I'm 29, dude. Like, uh, but, but, but Bateman. Bateman is part of that liberal world uh, of where where you know he is appalled by the uh, the bigotry of his peers, but only for image. He actually thinks low of of everyone around him, and he's actually an interesting portrayal of of the liberal identity politics of the eighties and nineties because it was very it was a lot of condescending shit disguised as good natured talk. Like, uh, you know, obviously there's the, the cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks scene. He doesn't, you know, er, in the movie, but in the book, it's, you know, either way, they're, they're both in there. And it, it's clear that Bateman doesn't actually care about Jews. He's just trying to be a scold. He's trying to get one over on his peers. Yeah, he just uh, wants to fit in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember on your, your episode about American Psycho, one of you said that, like, uh, Freddie Stanellis was the first person to come up with the concept of, like, performative wokeness. Yes. <laughs> like, like 20, <laughs> 25 years before that entered our lexicon, um, which is interesting. Um, it was a really good point. But I also think that his idea of what is performative, Freddie Stanellis's, is maybe a little bit different from ours um i think brett easton ellis real human man thinks that anytime anybody says like you shouldn't say this because this is racist or this is offensive uh he always thinks it's performative 
I think he, so, I think I, that's a fair point to make. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Brett, he's, you know, he is an older guy. He's kind of a bitter guy guy about certain <laughs> things for, as we discussed, as we already just said, you know, for cer certain good reasons. Like, he has a reason to kind of be cynical because he thought he was making this great anti-sexist, anti-racist, anti-phobic, anti-homophobia uh, screed. And, like, he was attacked by all the people who are supposed to be his, like, allies <laughs> on it. So I can see why he took from that, like, just, you know, this really deep cynicism about... <laughs> um how people talk about about wokeness in general that's a really interesting interpretation of Reddy Stanellis and his character that like that the public outcry against American Psycho kind of created the Brett that we see today because I've kind of always assumed that he was always like this kind of pot stirring edgelord and that like the furor over American Psycho was like exactly what he wanted just like now, like the Fuhrer when he says, you know, like Black Panther's being shoved down our throats or whatever is exactly which what he I wants. 100 went, which I 1,000 He's right. Yeah. I'm I, like, no, that's not wrong. I, like, <laughs> yeah. I, Brett, I, if Brett listens to this, I wrote, a, I'm a black guy and black uh, leftist. I wrote an article about how much Black Panther sucks. And now, and you can just use that as your defense. Use that as your, uh, use me as your black friend uh, to defend. <laughs> the other shit you say, I can't help you, you with. I'm one. sorry. I can't, I can't help you with the other stuff, but I can help you with Black Panther. <laughs> Here's the thing. I also think that Black Panther is not very good. It doesn't deserve a nomination, but I feel like Brett frames that, like frames his complaints about Black Panther as like uh, uh, political correctness being shoved down our yeah, throat. Yeah. Or like yeah, he's right, but he he's right about a lot of stuff. He just says it wrong. That is <laughs> his number one issue. He he's right, but he says it wrong. He says it in in a inarticulate way, which is really strange for a writer. But it's not unusual if you follow any writers on Twitter; they kind of just pop off. Um, writers need editors. Writers need second drafts. They shouldn't necessarily have a direct line of communication to the public. Um, but I. Uh, once again, we're so close to agreeing on Brett, but you're much more charitable towards him because I feel like he always, almost always says exactly what he means. He just like gets close to being right and then like takes the wrong <laughs> perspective on it. Like I feel like he really has a hard time kind of like setting aside being a wealthy white man whose life kind of has never had serious stakes. Um, <laughs> But he is honest about that, and he said people come on his show to yell at him about his white privilege, and he just kind of is like, okay, yeah, you're all right about that. I, I am a privileged white man. You think? Yeah. I was full of shit that time. Like he, he, and one thing he does do is he he'll give interviews while drinking. <laughs> like he he'll he likes doing that for some reason. Like so he does set himself. You're right that he kind of does set himself up for like stirring this shit and causing controversy um what, what was it the Catherine billiglow thing was the mm, best yeah. example of it like there's so many bad things you could say about Catherine bigelow like you can fly i have i have said them all but he picked like the least the worst one to say about her like and he actually did what that she was like married to james cameron or something no that or? he he was like oh she's always people like her because she's an attractive uh blonde woman like not because she's like a cia 
funded plant. Who, no, she makes like action movies that are like pro war. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know like, what you're well, talking about. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, I think she said if she wasn't an attractive blonde woman, she wouldn't have gotten nominated for yeah. best director. Okay. Yeah, that's like. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think I think the CIA made sure that nomination would go through. Like, I think. I think the uh, look, Bull, Bull and Bigelow fucked up a lot with Zero Dark Thirty. Like I remember, I saw it in theaters, and 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 I was looking back, and I, I, it is a pro torture movie, yeah, like without absolutely. a doubt. Like it's just, it is. Like there is, like there's, they do the torture, and then there's like the scenes where they're sad about doing the torture, like multiple, <laughs> multiple sad. Why did we do that? We're bad people, but then it works. So you know, case closed. Torture works. Yes. Like we, it's a dirty job. Someone's got to do it. Uh, written, uh, written by James Clapper. I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, obviously, Brett was just really jealous that uh, Catherine Heigl was able to make torture seem so appealing and justified and patriotic. And people Wait, just was Catherine Heigl involved. Oh, oh, it's Catherine Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow. <laughs> Too well, many Catherine. I didn't see it. Yeah. <laughs> you ever, you ever tried to make it through an episode of Grey's Anatomy? You know that that that's torture. that's up there with waterboarding. Uh, <laughs> um, I can't remember if this was a separate screed or the same one. I think it was the same one. When he said that Catherine Bigelow wouldn't have gotten nominated if she wasn't a hot blonde woman, he also in that same interview said like women across the board can't direct because directing is a visual medium and women aren't visual creatures. Yeah, he so he he <laughs> he, he that one was really bad. That one was really bad. But he had <laughs> another but he had another interesting one. He said there are less uh -huh. women directors because directing is inherently voyeuristic and his basic he's basically saying men are creepier that's why more men are directors and i think given what we've learned in the past few months he was you know somewhat right about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah while we're on the topic of of men being creepy he's also had some unpleasant comments about the me too movement oh. have you been keeping up with this no no <laughs> but i i can assume what he said i i think i, yeah. I can pretty, yeah, I yeah. is he burnt out like what he's never been accused of anything but the, like, the, but I, the funny no. thing is like he would shit on it even though like he was like the first person to expose brian singer like publicly on his show right like it, no, it's true. Like he just. I remember him talking about Brian Singer, but I thought it was after the whole thing came out, and I thought that after the fact he was like, "I knew about this." No, no, no. It was before. It was. Really? It was a couple of years before he was. He talked about it on the show, like, "Hey, I was, I, I was at you know Dorcia or whatever eating, <laughs> and I saw Brian Singer came up to me with a bunch of underage boys and asked me to go to a pool party, and he was like, um, no fucking thank you,' and like he <laughs> exposed this like years before people really." uh loud about brian singer and so like he was you know i don't want to call him a champion of the me too movement but <laughs> the founder really the founder <laughs> of the me too movement, quite possibly <laughs> but of course when it the movement actually happens he he tuts tuts of course i'm sure right yeah uh, more and more people i know in the entertainment industry are actually having a, a difficult time telling the difference between Me Too as an organic movement versus Time's Up, which is the Hollywood talent agency studio run take on Me Too, which is like the, like the, um, what, what's her name? She, uh, bah, 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 Joan of Arcadia, like Amber Tamblyn oh. and like, um, and like Alyssa Milano and like, uh, um, I think Ava's and Oprah are part of Time's Up and like Time's Up is weird because it's like run by the agencies and studios that sent all of these actresses to be, you know, 
taken advantage of by guys like Weinstein. And so when people say Me Too is bullshit, I'm like, well, not really. It's actually it was started by that woman, Tarana Burke, like 12 years ago or something. But I do think it has been co-opted by the Hollywood system in order to like sell fake empowerment narratives for like their superhero movies. And I think that's gross. Like to equate Time's Up with Captain Marvel to me, it's like it makes no fucking sense. Like the, the, the you know, women were starring in movies in the 70s. And so to pretend that like these these uh these constant redos of the same fake uh, gains that are only there because barriers are artificially placed uh, that are there that weren't there in the past. And then you have all of these like rich celebrities patting themselves on the back for being heroes. And I think ba- barriers uh, placed by the same companies they're living by the same up. people. Yeah. To be clear, like it's their own barriers. It's like the studios and the, the agencies put the barriers down and then they lifted it up and said, aren't we great? Yeah, like nobody it's told your Marvel, wall, dude. Mar- Mar- <laughs> nobody told Marvel they couldn't have a female superhero. Like they've been female superhero films before. There are six Resident Evil movies, five Underworld movies, Supergirl, Catwoman, uh, there are tons of movies, but now that now Disney has decided right. to finally have a female superhero, it's like, oh, this is such a great moment. See, you stop being sexist. Now let me know when you put act- uh, you know gay people back in movies again. Yeah, but that's the Hollywood system, you know. But that's where Brady Snellis is right. The Hollywood system doesn't want us to talk about like you know the hundred years of sex blo- this the hundred years of sexual exploitation, and frankly, the attitudes that the performer class. Uh, is interchangeable with prostitution. There are a whole lot of rich people that think that they can just hire an actor and fuck them if they're rich. And, well, like, it's, well, JDB, slow down. This is not okay, okay. the um, Imperial Bedrooms episode. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. We're still, Amer- <laughs> we're still an American psycho. But, 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 but we have, but we, you know, this, this, the attitude about how performers, musicians, actors, et cetera, especially women and, and, you know, people who are easily marginalized uh, in this system, like the, nothing is being done to actually fix the structural problems. However, there is a whole lot of like dancing, prancing and self-congratulations. And so in that respect, I do agree. But I do like I I think the mistake that's being made is to equate me to and Time's Up. And I I just think that like I wish uh, I think Time's Up wants people to think it's me too and not Time's Mm -hmm. Up. That's where it's weird. Like I think like the goal of this of Hollywood's uh, sexual harassment initiative is to merge with the broader cultural uh, conversation. But it's just it's phony. Um, so that's like, maybe that's my interpretation or maybe he's just an asshole. I don't know. (laughs) So so to give a little more, um, context, um, JDB, I think everything that you said just now is a great point that I'm totally on board with. Um, Brett's stance is basically like, okay, yes, rape is bad. If you're raped, that's bad. Um, uh, he's clear on that. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good, good, good boundary. Um, yeah. So we're starting from a good place. Um, but if somebody, oh, if somebody grabbed your dick at a party and you didn't like it, somebody grabbed your tits and you didn't want them to, oh, boo hoo, you just don't go to that party. This is like an almost verbatim quote. I can see that. Um, <laughs> I, can see, I can see that from. Is Brett. that like, is that like a Terry Crews thing? Yeah. Is that, okay. He specifically railed against ter- Terry Crews, but he also talked about like women who said that Trump groped them. He's he's very strongly he's very strongly like groping is not assault. It's just if you don't like it, go somewhere else. I think that's people like Trump. Uh, You know, nobody wants the party at Mar-a-Lago to stop. Right. Like, ugh, like we have to like deal with uh, someone, someone being assaulted. Gross. Like, I just want to keep having champagne and Trump energy drinks. Uh, (laughs) You know, 
I do think that it's really good that um that 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 the guy Adam Bennett, who is the agent at William Morris Endeavor, who did rope t- Terry Crews, he he did actually have to like retire. You know, I mean, I'm sure he got a sweet golden parachute, but he's not a he's not an agent anymore. Uh, that happened to very very few people, and like it wouldn't have it wouldn't have happened if Terry Crews didn't say something. I think it's really weird because you see a lot of attacks on the internet. Like if because I I still will read social media. I don't know why, but I guess I have to. And um, I see like lots of attacks on like black dudes for not supporting Terry Crews enough, and I just think that's just such horseshit. I don't think that's true at all. I think that um, neoliberal identity politics essentially pits you know, straight black men against gay black men against white women against, and and it creates this fucked up thing where like a a black man is victimized, but he's much bigger than the guy who victimized him. And people are going, Oh, come on. Why didn't you kick his ass? And it's just like, it's the, it's the same bullshit. It's, it's not a new attitude. No, he's wrong about that. A hundred percent disagree with Brett. Do do better, Brett. (laughs) You could yeah. name the podcast yeah. at this probably. Do better, <laughs> That's actually kind of a funny idea. Uh, <laughs> I do like it. Um, all right, let's take a break here. And when we get back, we will talk some more about American Psycho and my possibly controversial take on it. Back in history class, did you ever take a step back from that textbook you were reading and just think to yourself, man, these people are very dumb. Hi, my name is Eric McAdams, and I have a podcast for you. It's called Big Time Whoopsies, and every other Wednesday on the Major Cast Network, I tell a guest, and you the listener, a story from history involving massive incompetence. Big Time Whoopsies. People are dumb, and history can prove it. So American Psycho, when it first came out, was very controversial, as we talked about, but I feel like that controversy has kind of fallen away. It was first controversial because it was hated by women's groups. And then after that sort of faded, it still got like very mixed reviews. Like it was very polarizing because it was different from most of the books coming out at that time or most books that have ever come out. Um, But it's kind of solidified into a position of like modern classic and pretty much all like literary types like it. Um, I don't think I've really met anybody who's read it who doesn't think that it is a great book. Um, and I think a lot of us are just all united in our love of American Psycho, but I don't think that's what American Psycho is about. I think American Psycho is a book that wants to sow discord, wants to turn us against each other. And in that spirit, I would like to share a possibly controversial opinion that I don't think will win me any friends, Whoa. that I, <laughs> I don't think this book is a satire. If it is a satire, I don't think it's a very good one. And overall, I don't think it's a very good book. I think Whoa. it's one of his lesser. I think it's one of his lesser works. So, uh, okay, I don't want to get into what your favorite ones are because I'm sure you're saving that for another episode. But this is this is intense. Wow. I feel I feel ambushed. I feel ambushed. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you guys, you guys have like so much talking about Brett on Mike built up. That I felt like you were coming at this at a with an advantage because no, I'm no. new to it. So I so I had to do a sneak attack on you. I, I, no, I, I respect I, that. I respect that. You know? Like I mean, the fact that you're hosting, angle. the fact that you host a podcast about a guy, and then I'm like, okay, it's gonna be very pro BEE, and then you're like, I don't like this book. I'm like, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. This is excitement, dopamine rush. All right. 
American Psycho, I don't think it is a social satire because I think that for something to uh, fall under the category of satire, it needs to have the goal of changing people's minds, affecting change. And I don't think that is the goal of American Psycho at all. Um, and I think that because Brett himself uh, talks about a lot <laughs> about how he doesn't like when art pushes an ideology and he thinks that the only important thing in art is the aesthetic. So I think that one of the main things American Psycho is, is just like an exercise in an unusual artistic aesthetic. Um, well, the aesthetic and, uh, certainly was you know, <laughs> revolutionary. I'd never seen or read anything like it. But do you, do you think the repetition and the monotony was not to make a point, but just to seem slick, just some literary bullshit? Uh, I don't think the monotony is just literary bullshit. I think it is a book about like hopelessness, um, but I think it's more personal. I don't think it's, uh, I wouldn't call it a satire because I think it's just about like Brett's own sense of like despair and uh, ennui and awareness of his own mortality at the time he was writing this book. Um, because I don't really see anywhere in this book any suggestion that like there's something systemically wrong. It just seems like it's a void, just a void of misery. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I feel like for it to, for me to consider it a satire, I would need it to have to interest itself more in like what is going on on like a structural level. I can see that. Like I, I never, I almost never call anything satirical because I, I just don't think it's a very interesting word or term. And whenever somebody's <gasps> saying something is a satire, like I, I, it just, it's, it, it hides more than it reveals. I think when you call something, a sat satirical. What do you mean by that? Like it, it just like what is, like you know we're having this conversation because people keep calling American Psycho satire. I've never called it a sat. I would never call it a satire. I would say really? it's a portrayal of X, Y, and Z as opposed to it's like oh it's a satire and then that just brushes everything on the rug. I'd rather say like it is a portrayal of the awfulness of the 80s the people he knew and also it, it comes from a place of pain and he does say this it comes from a, a personal place of pain but as far as like i don't think he does criticize having a you know being a psa you know having a specific uh ideological ideological message but so does john carpenter and right. john carpenter has ma made they live so it, when when he says that that's I think, a message movie though they live that's definitely no, a movie says with the he, point of view he's, he's, he, no no well here's the difference like he says it's not a message movie he says message movies are bar, boring i think brady snellis and john carpenter and alan moore and a lot of left-leaning you know political creatives have that point of view because it's not just a, it's not about a message it's about having themes and ideas and writing from that and not just saying this is what you should think this is how you should feel it's a subtle difference mm -hmm. but it's one worth acknowledging because people don't really like message movies or message books yeah but you can have themes that are deeper and are political and i think this book does have some pretty good 
um, themes and politics to it, but it's not just about a message. It's not telling you this is the way to be, this is how to fix things, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, this is the problem. We're going to dwell in this for 400 pages. You can figure out the rest for yourself. Mm. You know, Kate, Leslie, you both mentioned Wall Street earlier and, 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 you know, that's definitely not a satire. That's more of like a slick drama. But uh, people call Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street a satire. And I would actually, you know, if American Psycho isn't a satire, then that's definitely not a satire. It's a dark comedy and there is a difference. Uh, I do think American Psycho and Wolf of Wall Street both uh, drive humor from the inhumanity of excess and greed. But what America, I mean, American Psycho just takes the thematic connection of winner take all capitalism to uh, murdering homeless people and killing sex workers and torture. And I mean, uh, the book has more torture than the movie. That's another thing I forgot about. Yeah, the book is a lot more uh, violent in, in the movie than the movie for obvious reasons. Uh, they had to release it in theaters. They couldn't release uh, the book in theaters because it's too violent. So, like, uh, yeah. I, I don't really like. I never really call like anything a satire. Maybe it's just. I, I just don't like that term because I feel mm. like anytime somebody is pulling it out, they're not really explaining what this work really means or really says, aside from Jonathan Swift. Okay. Like that's the one, that, <laughs> that's the one satire that every, satirist. he's the only satirist that everyone agrees on. He's the only satirist that everyone agrees on. I think we can all agree on that. Mm. Uh, everyone <laughs> yeah. else uh -huh. there's debate about. Okay. So I, I, I don't I, but like the book is, is deeply, deeply funny in a lot of ways and it's pointing out the emptiness of you know wealth and life in the 80s and consumerism and consumerist culture uh and like when you were mentioning the repetition like him late the labeling all the clothes talking about all the clothes and the face wash and the and the workout system and the food and the plates of food with like two pieces of lobster and all this other like goofy goofy the way, shit God, I th just I the way mary heron shoots it too in the movie oh it's like a commercial it's beautiful but like he's not he, he i do feel like he is saying like this is all bad at least like you're supposed to pick up like that this is bad even though he doesn't tell you like what would be good what would be a better world? How do we fix this? I think he it, it is a systemic critique to point out that every single result of the system is fucked up and worthless. I think that is a type of sy systemic critique. It is. It I is. think that's a that's a really good point. I think um, this is getting me more on on board <laughs> with the book because I think the main reason that I considered it not a satire is like the lack of a solution or hint at a solution. I agree that Brett is like this, the system is bad leads to misery. But um, I think any of us who read it and see it as, as like satirical for lack of a better word um, for like a systemic critique, we see it as like anti-capitalist, but I think that Brett is very decidedly not anti-capitalist and not left-leaning. He, politically reminds me of the most of like the South Park guys of like his his political ideology is push the envelope as much as possible in terms of what you can say in public, what you can say in mixed company, but like structurally maintain the status quo because I'm already a rich white guy and it works have for you, me. 
Have you watched the last two seasons of South Park? They're like radical. They did an entire uh, season about gentrification being bad. Like they're the moving left. Uh, I, I, like uh, the last thing I heard about them was that they announced they were Republicans. Was no, that just they for did fun? that twelve years ago, and for some reason it was like they, oh. so. They brought Larry Elder, who was like a black uh, right wing talk show host, who was very very popular in the late 90s and early 2000s to a People for the American Way function led by Norman Lear. And then they said, we have an announcement. We're Republicans. It was very funny, but uh, it was also uh, like satirical. I, I don't think they, so. They did. They did. Like, they did the global warming apology episode, and then I, this isn't a South Park show. I'm, yeah, I, I, don't I, I don't have to do this. I don't. I don't want to talk about South Park. Well, okay. When I compare him to the South Park guys, I am going on an idea of the South Park guys that is maybe ten years out of date. So keep that because in nobody mind. has paid attention to. Them I mean, it's been on a show for like forty fucking years. Like, yeah. right. but, I, I, but I will say, I don't think necessarily Brett Easton Ellis is a leftist, but. His uh, partner is a socialist. He and he certainly has some understandings of certain things that I think are left leaning. Like he is extremely anti corporate in a lot of senses. Um, I, I he talks about this a lot, like how much he hates corporate uh, corporations and corporate culture in a similar way that a leftist would like he doesn't want disney to run everything like i think we can find a common ground on that but even so like i don't necessarily think his political leanings now or even then necessarily dictate what the political message is necessarily of the book because i i mean i just follow any writer on twitter all of them are like the dipshittiest um, <laughs> uh, uh, lib, uh, dim Russiagate people. Like all of them. All of them are awful. Like even they all got the Matto even, clips but, at but the like, ready. Like Warren Warren <laughs> Ellis, you know, who wrote Trans Metropolitan, which is like you know this thing that created like thousands of leftists. But he's like a very liberal. William Gibson, you know, cyberpunk. Oh you know, man, very that was a bummer. Like that all, was a real bummer. So when you get all these writers. And like, like they don't even get like how like left leaning their own work, work is. is. They don't they don't really yeah. get it. So I I, I, I don't really want to hold that against them because I do think American Psycho is a very anti capitalist book, and you can't. It's hard to read it any other way. Even if Brett, Brett himself is not explicitly anti capitalist, he saw the cracks and the problems, and he decided to write about them in this very aggressive and pretty clear way and i think we have to give the book even if we can't give brett credit for understanding this we have to give the book um credit for understanding this yeah i think that's a good point and i am very on board with the reading that this book is uh saying things that brett doesn't understand it's saying um <laughs> i will say one one uh scene maybe the only scene in the book that i i feel like or at least my favorite um that i think like it really works as a social critique is the scene with the homeless man who has the dog mm. uh, and Patrick Bateman is like asking him, why don't you get a job? Yeah. Why don't you make something of yourself? And then he says, um, I'm sorry, I just don't have anything in common yes. with you. And then like gouges this guy's eyes out very graphically. Uh, that to me is like the, the best kind of commentary on on like the way that the wealthy, super privileged elite sort of view the 
underclass. Like they can't feel empathy because it's just like so removed from their understanding of the world. Right, it's alien. I mean, and, and, and yeah. this is a important point. I, 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 we talk a lot on the show about the Purge series and what's kind of radical about the first Purge film is that the moral center of the first film is a homeless black man. Like you don't see poor black people or homeless black people portrayed in a sympathetic or positive way vast majority of the time in Hollywood on, on TV. And unless and, it's unless there's like a white savior narrative, like uh, the blind spot or, or the blind side or the, the soloist. The soloist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, really, <laughs> some really, you know, corny shit, right? Magical but, shit, yeah. But American Psycho, like that scene is supposed to shock and scare you. That treatment of the homeless man is supposed to feel extremely, you know, graphic and violent and disgusting to you. And in a weird, strange way, that is taking, that is showing the humanity that we should, you know, imbue in homeless people, imbue in poor people. Like, we're supposed to feel just as bad when he's killing the homeless people as when he kills, you know, his upper class, you know, co-worker, or when he kills a beautiful blonde model. We're supposed to treat all these people as equally human. Now, it's a strange way to do it by violently having them murder in the book, but it is saying, like, he's egalitarian. We're, we're taking <laughs> this person humanity seriously because w when he is victimized it's not dismissed it is a pivotal scene in the novel and there's lots of stuff i mean we we talk it's a joke in horror the black guy always dies first the black guy does die first in american psycho at least the film but it's it, it's so much more impactful than what you normally see how you normally see black people who are victims of violence in these films treated uh, in these films or books or TV shows treated. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting. You mentioned that, uh, you know, I know you're going to do a separate episode about the movie or whatever, but when Paul Allen gets murdered, we're laughing. Yeah, no, there's no, <laughs> you know, there's no laughing in the scene where, where he kills the homeless guy. Like there's no joy or humor there, but as the audience, we're, we're, we're having a ball as this yuppie dickhead is getting hacked to bits. And so that's also kind of interesting. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, we're all, we're all capable of like horrible violence and, and we are all guilty of even fantasizing about it at times, but you know, the way that it works for Bateman is, he feels less and less after these killings. So it just, it, there is no catharsis in a, in a world where, in, in, in that world, in, in, in our world, there is no catharsis. Like the ultimate act of catharsis, the ultimate act uh, of, of getting something off of your chest is probably killing somebody. If you think about it, like there's no higher extreme you can go to like end a problem or end something that bothers you or, anything and the fact that he keeps killing and is still feeling completely and utterly uh you know tranquilized is is definitely i think one of the most chilling parts of the whole book is just that that calmness and then that sense that like he's not feeling better you know especially towards the second half yeah and he is feeling less and less the more people he kills and so the bizarreness and the severity of the torture he inflicts on his victims escalates more and more as the book goes on. And uh, there is just some of the most absolutely horrifyingly graphic violence 
the definitely the most horrifying violence I've ever encountered. I don't know if worse violence exists in literature. Um, as as two guys who like the book more than I do, mm-hmm. I I hate the violence. Um, uh, the the degree that it escalates to, I hate it not for any moral reason, just aesthetically. Um, I'm wondering, as two guys who like the book more than I do, how do you feel about those? really horrifyingly intense scenes of like a sewer rat getting trapped in a woman's vagina for instance i think i feel the exact same way that you do but i feel like i feel i like horror you know i feel like i'm horrified by it but that horror that i feel helps me purge my negative feelings of fear and horror my fear of being murdered and tortured my my anxieties about all the about the world that reading this novel you know even like the worst parts like helps me feel better because it's just the book and god i forgot about the rat yeah (laughs) i I can never forget forget about the rat um i'm jealous of you yeah but it it just it just you know reading this book even with the violence like it's it just helps me feel better um to read it Mm -hmm. in this completely fictional safe uh zone like i'm i'm just as horrified but like i like being horrified my um my sister's boyfriend he will never ever ever watch a horror movie and his reasoning is why would i pay money to get scared i'm like and but my thinking is why wouldn't i pay money to get scared like i'm safe i'd much rather be scared in the movie theater or reading the book than in real life Good horror, or I mean, if you can get the feeling of going on like, I don't want to say like a roller coaster, but the good horror can almost simulate the anxiety and fears of death that we all have and bring us closer to acknowledging it than uh, I think any other genre of fiction, really, because um, horror is just focused almost purely on mortality. And, and and the very the, which is the last thing we've got, uh, <laughs> you know, being alive. And if we're uh, if we're not alive, then you know, well, like that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also like horror, um, but I I really shy away from like torture horror. Yeah, I don't I don't like gore. I don't like torture. Mm. Um, but I I do agree. I find horror cathartic. But for me, I don't really consider American Psycho a horror novel and I don't really find it scary uh, and I definitely don't find it cathartic just just as Patrick Bateman finds no catharsis oh. I also feel like it just kind of <laughs> sucks me into a world of despair oh. and I think maybe that's because we're tracking this character who also yeah, I mean he's such a miserable fucking soul yeah. Yeah. Oh, I find this book immensely I will pick it if I'm having a bad day. I'll just pick it up and start reading stuff out of there. It's very, even like not even just the violence, like the writing style of it. It's very hypnotic. It's like you just get lost in all these brands. The colleagues I buy presents yeah. for include Victor Powell, Paul Oven, uh, Paul Owen, David Van Patten, Craig McDermott, Louis Carruthers. Like all like this list of like fifteen names of uh of like these complete and other assholes, and you can tell by their name that they're assholes. The listing of all the brands, <laughs> all the all the different guests that Patty Winters has on the show, like all the, that just it makes me feel so <laughs> relaxed. And he's and good at good. creating visuals with names which is a really interesting thing like when you hear the name yeah uh what was that last one you said patty winters like you already know what, what she patty looks like winters. she has huge yeah, you know hair, what she looks like huge no. hair shoulder pads <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> she's in like in her late forties, like, uh, and she has yeah. a shitload of money and likes to host parties. Like you know that, like <laughs> instantly, like. Brought, I have a fan theory. Twice. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a fan theory about the Patty Winters show, the like morning talk show that Patrick is always watching, and he just periodically updates us on what today's theme was on the Patty Winters show. I don't think that show exists. Oh, I think that's the mur- I think the murders are real. I think everything in this book <laughs> happens, except I don't think the Patty Winters show is real. <laughs> he does talk to other people about it but do they always like say like oh i didn't watch it or i don't know yeah they i don't think any i th- yeah he asks people did you catch the patty winter show and i think everyone just always says no i don't think anyone else has ever <laughs> seen it and it feels there's certainly a point if the patty winter show is real there's a point when he starts hallucinating what it's about because i think towards the end of the book he says a cheerio sat in a tiny chair and was interviewed for an hour yes. <laughs> um so at a certain point, he's making up what the Patty Winter show is about. But I feel like the the content of it kind of maps with his emotional slash mental state so closely that I think that I think Patty Winters uh, was dead the whole time. So, so I if do, you I, think the <laughs> go, go ahead. I, I do really want I do want to imagine that the episode where they ask if Patrick Swayze has gotten uh, cynical is was a is a real show that could actually happen and I, and I like to imagine like what would be that thing today like would there be like a show would patty winners be asking the question like has takashi 69 gotten cynical <laughs> now i would be really yeah interested. like like the american psycho 2019 patrick bateman uh, African American CEO watches The Breakfast Club in in Atlanta at his uh at, at, like the the sports advertising firm he works at. <laughs> oh, JDB, and... that's a brilliant rate. That's the first race bent thing that I've ever liked. I actually do. Oh, really? Think, you like it? I All right, actually I'll keep do it. think if Patrick Bateman came out in 2019, he should be a black man. I think that would be cool. <laughs> well, there you I'm go. I'm into it. <laughs> Write it up, JDB. <laughs> I just made that up right now. Uh, you, you take it; it's yours. I'm too scared to, to do anything with it. Uh, no, you know it, it's it's um it's interesting that you think the murders are real because then that means that there's some sort of conspiracy to cover them all up, yes. right? So yeah, but but why if Patrick isn't that? You know, he's like a junior executive, right? He's replaceable. He's not. No, no, he's he not. Repl- no, he's not replaceable. He has family money. His fa- his father right. owns a different a firm Trump. as big as PNP. So, like, oh, that's right. Yeah, because people are always asking him, like, why are you working at, P- at Pierce and Pierce when your father owns the other one? And he just says, I don't want to talk about it. And so, yeah. like, he is kind of a big way. And this is something that Brett kind of gets into with Glamorama, where, like, there are, like, all these machinations either protecting or getting rid of um, these sons and daughters of wealth that are much bigger than anything Patrick Bateman is doing. Like, I, I actually really like the idea that the murders are real and that the real estate broker who uh, take who cleans up Paul Allen's apartment and tells Patrick Bateman to get the fuck out out of here and actually scares Patrick. Like I think she's the creepiest motherfucker in the whole book. Yeah, she really is because like this is a guy who who like barely gets off on killing. Like it barely enough to to make him feel slightly regular. So for him to be terrified, it, I mean it's it's beyond it's beyond powerful when you when you see that coming. I was um 
you know, uh, Netflix has been really pushing the shit out of Ted Bundy the last few weeks because they got the Ted Bundy documentary, and then the same guy made the Zac Efron Ted Bundy movie that they bought. So, like, just nonstop everywhere I go, people are talking about Ted Bundy, how he was fuckable, blah, 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 like all the stuff that we've heard before. Uh, what's interesting, I think, when you compare a guy like Bateman to Bundy is that Bateman just, you know— he he is almost like his dad. It's interesting. Yeah, his dad adds another wrinkle to it because you don't really meet the guy. But then why does he even have a job at all? Like, why does he have to work? Why does he have to do anything? But of this? here's the like, here's the thing. He, he says it. He says, "I just want to fit in," and I do. Yeah. And this is something I think is does represent like a uh, systemic critique because none of these people ever do any work, especially P Patrick in the novel. He's always in the office, but he's always leaving to go to lunch, to go to the gym or leering at genie. Yeah. Or, he never yeah. does a single or staying home to jerk off in a bathroom yes. <laughs> in, a ba in a bathtub with a necklace made of vertebrae around. Yes. His neck. He never does any work. And the implication is that like all these none people, of them do. none of them do any, <laughs> any work. They just sit there and, Brett has said this like this is kind of how it does really work. It's just a bunch of meetings and lunches, uh, and so I do like that at, that at, that revelation because we're supposed to. And this is why it also is kind of just the novel itself is kind of a systemic critique to have a you know a serial killing finance guy on Wall Street because we this is these are the people we're supposed as a society supposed to worship that is our default position to um, is my, maybe not now but certainly in 1989 and 1990 we're supposed to think these guys are the people who drive america these are the movers and the shakers the rainmakers and to they're put, the spear of the economy yeah and yeah. to put out a novel saying that they're all worthless pieces of shit who don't do anything who have no taste who are just you know these you know uh vain losers who hate each other uh who just are, are dope heads all, every to a man to a man is addicted to cocaine um, who are sexist, homophobes, racist, of the most, you know, not even, not like high class, like hidden racism, just like the most base kind that you would stereotypically expect from like a someone, someone who lives in a trailer park in the South, that level of bigotry from them. To put that novel out is a condemnation of like everything that's built these people up to be our heroes and the people we look up to right. the and the people Reaganomics. and the people we made president um because <laughs> trump is mentioned in this novel many many times uh, he patrick bateman really really likes donald trump says how much of a nice guy he is wants to go to his parties like it's it i guess the only problem is that we didn't listen to brett enough <laughs> Yeah, it is really jarring. The first time I read American Psycho was before the 2016 election. So then going back and reading it with like this new heightened awareness of references to Trump, he's Trump is all over yeah. this book. I mean, he's been everywhere for the last 40. It's it's I I, uh, I acted in a movie a few years ago and I like my character made a reference to Trump and then Trump won and I saw a clip. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot I said that. That's weird. Like he is everywhere. Like and he's always been everywhere. He's in like Home Alone, too. He's in uh, the Little Rascals. He's been in like he was doing all these like goofy like Playboy Club videos. Like 
you know, like this is guys like him uh, are not. I mean, all all that guy managed to do, and what's so bizarre is like run a bunch of companies into the ground <laughs> and then just make money by pretending he was successful. Like he pulled off the Hollywood con and then took it uh, to the you know highest seat of power in the world, but. Uh, what uh, Bateman doesn't a guy like Bateman doesn't have the charisma of a Trump. He can't he's not good at pretending he loves what he does the way these other fucks do. And, and I mean, like the uh, Lewis Carruthers and, and Paul Allen are great examples of that. They are they are they love they love what they do. Patrick Bateman has to be, you know, he's desperate to fit in, but he's a phony. Uh, these guys are genuine in their in their uh, in their narcissism. I mean, not to say that he's not a narcissist. Of course he is. But. He he is the only one of the entire firm who has any sense of self-loathing at all. Yeah, and this is well, this is uh, some somebody some uh, said on our show like he's the Patrick Bateman is the only character with a sense of morality in the yeah. book because that's what's so Shane, bizarre. Shane from Beast Coast uh, pointed this out like he's the only one who ever thinks that anything is wrong really, and anything is wrong with what he's doing. Like he wants to be judged. He wants to be at, at a certain point. He wants to be arrested. He tries to confess, and it just doesn't work because there because for someone like Patrick Bateman, the rules don't apply. He can right. do whatever it's he wants. Mike Huckabee's son, like, slit a dog's throat. You know, nothing happened. Mike Huckabee is still, like, tweeting stupid, like, like, Obama's emails, Hillary, like, all that, you know, like, all the hack 2015 shit he's been doing for the past four years. Like, and, and then his daughter is the spokesperson for the president. Like, they're really, like, if 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 if, if you were applying for a job at the White House uh, and you were like, yeah, like, my brother murdered a dog in the interview, like, normally they'd say, okay, bye. But there are certain people that just doesn't apply to. And uh, Bateman's one of them. The other lawyers are probably part of that same clique. And really just, it, it, there are two sets of laws or maybe even three or four or hundreds, but the richer you are, the less they apply to you. And the truth is, is that uh, very, we have seen lots of really uh, dramatic stories over the last two years about how many people have been destroyed. And while like personally, I, I don't, I'm not a fan of public humiliation and I am always a little anxious whenever like everybody like drags somebody for something, uh, whether they did something bad or not, just that's why I don't like social media that much. Uh, I do think that there is like this weird thing that that's happening where um, the the most shameless people survive those the people who never say sorry the people who never confess they've done anything wrong and and even if they do say they've done things wrong people don't really believe them to go back to Ted Bundy uh, nobody wanted to believe that that guy was a serial killer because he was charismatic and handsome and had a lot of fun and so it, it, and that's really what most people want out of their friendships is they and, and, and most people like they just want they want to feel good and have fun and be able to share things with others and so it, it patrick being the only character in the entire book with empathy is like the double ironic i wouldn't twist say of, empathy of but not empathy <laughs> sympathy a sympathy. moral compass sympathy mm. and a moral compass i would say he's sympathetic not empathetic that's you're right he's a sociopath but he does have an understanding of how um, how feelings work, and that's different, I think, from yeah, and yeah, you're right. Like uh, he doesn't compartmentalize, which is which is another thing that like uh, you know a lot of serial killers throughout history have done, where they have like 
they, they, they don't, you know, they do the awful thing and then they switch their brain and then they're like the normal upstanding citizen. Like Patrick is, is one of the few serial killers in fiction who has no bones about his, uh, his problem. So rereading this book for the first time in several years, I was really struck uh, by how like overtly comedic a lot of it is. Like I hadn't remembered it having such a humorous tone. Do you guys feel like this is a funny oh, yeah. book? Yeah, oh, very funny. Really very funny. funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, I honestly, for me, a lot of the parts that I clock as intending to be funny, like don't really land with me. But the one thing that I think is really, really funny is in the, um, the Huey Lewis and the news chapter, you have to read seven pages of reviewing Huey Lewis's discography to get to it. Um, and and it's just straight ahead, just information about Huey Lewis in the news. And then at the bottom of page seven of that, he says the album ends with slamming, which has no words. And it's just a lot of horns that, quite frankly, if you turn it up really loud, can give you a fucking big headache and maybe even make you feel a little sick. Though it might sound different on an album or on a cassette, though I wouldn't know anything about that. Anyway, it set off something wicked in me that lasted for days and you cannot dance to it very well. <laughs> <laughs> it's so <laughs> deranged and i like i'm mad that it that you have to read seven pages of like pretty boring pop culture uh pop culture info to get to it and that, but that kind of makes it funny I, mean, I wonder how many oh. people just went ah i'm gonna, <laughs> gonna skip like one of these <laughs> yeah it's nice to get like a little bit of a reward for reading the whole thing <laughs> that's that's uh, him, what are some that's him being a troll so, for sure i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, what are so what are some parts of this book that like you guys think are especially funny he's too black sounding that is the funniest <laughs> thing ever when he talks about Huey Lewis. And it's kind of true. <laughs> he is very black sounding, but not so black that you think he's black. Like he, like, no. but no. black sounding. I think that's a very, very um, funny well, he, bit with the detective. He's, he's got like, um, it's because it's because Huey has like such a soulful singing voice that's very deep. <laughs> I don't need to actually now start analyzing Huey Lewis in the movie. <laughs> we were singing in the first album. Now, uh, if you listen to the power of love on the Back to the Future soundtrack. Another one is like, of, of course, he is obsessed with getting into Dorcia. Dorcia, Dorcia. Yeah, Dorcia is so funny. Yeah. Dorcia is. But the payoff, the, the payoff of the Dorcia joke is that you know he his dipshit brother Sean Bateman from Rules of Attraction <laughs> is he's gonna meet him and Patrick actually thinks to himself as like a fucking joke oh maybe I'll try to get us a table at Dorcia but the last time I called somebody just laughed at me and hung up so uh, and I, no way I would you know waste this on my fucking shithead brother who doesn't has no taste and of course of course Sean gets them the best table at Dorcia with no problem whatsoever right. like patrick bateman is talking before like i i i really want to get into dorcia i want to get i want to get a table at dorcia before i turn 30 that is my goal and his shitty brother with no seemingly no connection is able to get one no problem and he's and patrick is so furious because it's the best table and he orders the food he orders the most expensive stuff on the menu menu two types of lobster and sean eats nothing from it and then expects patrick to pay which of course he does. I thought that was really funny. 
<laughs> it's great. Because none of these guys are ever as slick as they think they are. It's, if you've ever talked to like a, like a yuppie, like a hardcore yuppie, uh, they, they tend to have this like weird condescending like – like they treat you like uh, like a, like like the British when they call each other sport or chap or something like hey buddy yeah like you, you get this Tons like condescending garbage when you talk to them like like they know that you're under them but like they'll still humor you and like all these people think they're so slick when they talk to you like that like like that that you're too dumb to understand their their genius they're, condescending. they're just not they're coked up dickheads yeah. like <laughs> yeah there's 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 a scene where Patrick. Um, I think he leaves a dinner and like he and he gets called a yuppie on the street and like he tries to like start talking up some girls and they're just like, oh, fuck off, yuppie. Nobody likes you. And then he starts trying to like he sees some black people and he tries to get some blackness off of them. And it's like, oh, man, I'm not a yuppie. I'm cool. I'm fresh. I'm dope. And like everybody just stares at him and ogles, ogles them because they're all like, you know, young, hip people. And he thinks he's young, but he's really just like a dork from Wall Street and everybody else. Right. Old money. Everybody else in the city hates his uh, fucking, fucking guts. Uh, there's also and like again with the uh, Sean thing, like Patrick's like trying to name all these fancy clubs he can get into, and Sean is just like, "What? You still go there? Like that place is old. That's ancient. No one goes there." Yeah, and it seems like that could be true, or that could just be like Sean knows exactly the thing to say to fuck with yeah. Patrick's head. <laughs> Yeah, and Patrick doesn't. Because, and Patrick's not smart enough to pick up on it. He just. <laughs> you know, you mentioned. I just realized now that Patrick Bateman isn't thirty yet in the in the book or the movie, and I totally forgot about that. I'm tw I'm twenty nine now, and I'm like oh, you having some hurry up. thoughts. You better hurry no, up. I'm, well, yeah, I gotta get the, I gotta get the Dorsey. <laughs> but uh, but no, I, I you know now that I now that you've mentioned that L, part of me wonders how much of this book is about the cynicism of like not being a kid anymore. Like, oh shit, I'm stuck in all of these things I don't want, and like this is supposed to be uh my reward, and it sucks, and it's off. Like, how much of that is like a personal reflection on getting older and and sort of being. Uh, you know, rock starred into like this, uh, you know, this literati world of these these Gen X writers who kind of were just making a shitload of money and blowing up all at once. And then I wonder how much of American Psycho is like a personal uh, sense of cynicism about what, you know, happened to him over the last few years. Because now because that's probably how old he how old was he when this book he, came out? He's know, probably he, the same age as Bateman. He was he was a little bit younger than Bateman. He was like 27. Wow. Yeah, but he saw it coming. <laughs> Obviously, he saw, he saw he saw he saw you know the party you know kind of winding uh, down and glitter and uh, glamorama is kind of like the after party where you know you either uh, grow up or your parents uh, have you murdered and replaced with a clone. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think you're right, JDB. I think that that is, a lot of that I, is yeah. I, I, I think it is a a really personal novel, like more than people more than people tend to think. Mm -hmm. Um. And I don't want to I don't want to bring in his later works too much, but he um, a lot of Lunar Park is built around American Psycho. Mm -hmm. And like the if you're to believe fictional Brad Easton Ellis's take on American Psycho, it's very clear that it was like a very personal kind of like attempt to exercise his own demons. But yeah, but it makes and, me, yeah, it just makes me wonder, like, I don't know, I, I'm like I'm about to be in my 30s and I'm kind of excited for it weirdly, like as a teenager. I was stoked about entering my 20s, but then I ended up, like, 
they they were better than my teens, but like not by much. And now that I have like a, a settled sense of expectation, I'm I'm kind of excited about turning thirty. But I know a lot of people, and I have a lot of friends who get real anxious about it. Like, oh, I'm old now, and I'm like, God, that's we're all gonna live to be 120 because they need us in the salt mines, and they're gonna have to keep you know putting uh you know uh, <laughs> once global warming changes everything, <laughs> we're gonna they're gonna keep giving us cybernetic organs so they can keep working us forever. Uh, but more more importantly like I, the the fear of aging seems to be a, a major theme of the book now the more and more i think about it like maybe it's 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 the adults that are you know the adults are the psychopaths and like by becoming an adult he has become that he is brett brett is like you know personifying like the transition for, between youth and adulthood is savagery i don't know i'm could be just talking out of my ass but that whole like wanted to go before i turned 30 thing really like that hit me in a way that it didn't hit me when I read it uh, when I wasn't about to turn 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that makes sense. Um, I also think it makes sense for for you to dread growing older when your 20s are as rad as Brad Easton Ellis's 20s seem to have been. Like <laughs> if you published a super popular novel and became like the voice of your generation when you were 21, I think it makes sense to be like uh, terrified of, of entering into proper adulthood. Yes. And also, if you're as as image conscious as Patrick Bateman is, I think it makes sense to fear growing older because y your physical appearance is all that there is to you, right? Yeah, I, I think mean, he says, I feel yeah. horrible, but I look great. I think that's what he says. Yeah. Um, all right, guys, is there anything else that you are dying to hit on Ooh. before we... Before, before we all take uh, before we all take naps. Well, I do want to ask Katie, how... do you still feel the same way after we had our discussion about the book? I feel like I still I, I'm still a skeptic, but you have given me some stuff to think about. And, you know, the first time I read American Psycho, I was excited to never read it again. The second time I read American Psycho just recently, I was excited to never read it again. But I feel like I'm going to have to give okay. it a third go with with this conversation in mind. But this time I'm going to skip maybe the two or three most horrifying murders okay. you can do yes. that <laughs> yeah you're allowed to you're allowed to do that you're allowed to like not read things that make you deeply uncomfortable uh but i i'm but 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 i'm like you know and i can't speak for leslie but i i'm just like i i've got a warped brain i do like reading simulated violence i like watching simulated violence i really enjoy fake gore uh, at the same time anytime i scrape my knee i go Ooh! so like i have a very like uh, clear like boundary when it comes to that and and uh i think what was cool part of the reason why i love the book and the movie so much is that it explores that in a way that um you know is interesting it's more it's very rare that you have a murderer story that judges the system more than the killer itself the system that creates those murderers i mean it's it's just not a it's not a common trope so or it, it probably is a little more now but uh, I mean, like the cell and shit like that. But but back then, like a psychological horror there, or a, a thriller that actually dove into the mind, uh, that was a new thing. Um, so like the it's an innovative book. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Even if even if like <laughs> like myself, you're maybe not not that fond of it. It is. I think it's definitely fair to say that it's innovative, um, and probably. It probably wouldn't have set as much of a trend in pop culture if it weren't for the the movie. But um... I think that's also true. I think like it, it, the the movie brought the book back to life in the same way that Fight Club brought the book back to life. Palinuk 
and Brett Easton Ellis uh, have both benefited from Hollywood. Uh, I mean, Choke actually, but 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 not as much as they should have, frankly. Like it, it's kind of weird that they haven't been able to do awesome adaptations of their work in, in the in the film world. Besides uh, besides uh, Fight Club and American Psycho, like Choke wasn't that good, and then I didn't really love the Rules of Attraction movie that much. The, ru- it's and, the movie's uh, fun. It's it's fun. it's all right. I, like it's, I think it's. I hate that movie. Okay. <laughs> I, I it's, it's, it's okay. Like, I, I like the actors. I thought. And then. Informer. Then but then, the actors are really yeah, good. But the informers. Yeah. That's the one that's really. That's a real good no, movie. No, that's dog shit. Really? Like oh, wait. Wait. That's the. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the one that killed Brad Renfro? Or yes. is that the one he died making? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. That one was bad. Yeah. Yeah. Those. I'm, the people I'm, who made that have never read a Brett Easton Ellis novel. There's nothing <laughs> funny about the movie. There's not a single joke. It's oh, all yeah. just people staring wistfully, feeling, you know, deeply, you know, sympathetic and empathetic. I'm like, they thought they were making like some kind of fucking Oscar movie. They thought they were making Crash <laughs> again. Like, it's just, I mean, it had yeah. the book that it should have had, but nothing else. I feel like the book Informers is like, not quite as Brett Easton Ellis-y as <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis's other books, and it is a little bit more bland. Uh, it has vampires. Come on, it has vampires. It has one vampire <laughs> for ten pages. I wish the whole book was the vampire. He's the best part. <laughs> I think Brett Easton Ellis actually has a lot of structural. Uh, thematic similarities to S.E. Hinton, which nobody has ever connected the two before. But, like, they were both kind of, like, child prodigy writers. Like, S.E. Hinton wrote The Outsiders when she was 16. Uh, you know, Lesson Zero came out when, he, what was he, like, 20, 21? Uh, yeah. they, and they, they both had hit-and-miss adaptations. Like, all a bunch of their books became movies, and, like, very few of those movies were good. And both, uh, both of their literary catalog... It, are stories that you know tend to talk about class. Uh, other than that, they couldn't be any more different. But I just just noticed that just now, and I was like, huh. I wonder. Uh, I wonder how that. You know, I wonder what uh, a writer who hits it big so young, uh, you know, as they as they actually mature and develop into an adult, what that does to you. I wonder what you know. I wonder how you transform as a person when you're when one of your most successful moments was when you were like a kid. I mean. I could sort of relate being that like yeah, the act, the movie, I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was like 21 when I acted in a movie that made like a shitload of money, but like, and I, and I haven't really, you know, uh, done anything of that level since, nor do I necessarily think I have the interest to, but, uh, what's interesting is, is that I do think that like, there is something about the mid twenties that's very, very dark. And I think it's because that's when, I mean, if well, I didn't go to college, but your mid to late twenties are when you sort of start to realize you're you're a cog. You're not actually this, um, you know, you're not actually this like happy go lucky like Zoe Deschanel character. I always thought I was, uh, <laughs> like, oh, you are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. No, I'm not the beautiful and unique snowflake. I'm not like. You know, like it actually people get annoyed when I'm like super, super chipper. Like it's like you start to see like, oh, everyone's ex- I think I was 26 or 27 when I started noticing that everybody is exhausted all the time. I was like, oh, everybody's tired. I, I get it. Like it was like a huge revelation. Uh, and like the sleepwalking that Bateman almost does through his days and that repetition, that monotony and the dreamscape 
I just think adds to the horror. And I do think it is like horror. I, I mean, it, it's not not horror just because it's, you know, I do think it is also a satire. I disagree with you. But I am now questioning how much of a satire it is. So you did your job. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, guys. Well, before we move on to rating this book, I just have a little thing that I like to do. I'm a big fan of... Brett Easton Ellis's Twitter feed of yesteryear. He used to be a very active Twitter user and um, pot stirrer. Um, he doesn't really tweet anymore. He just <laughs> tweets like to, pro- to promote his podcast. <laughs> um, Smart. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but back in the day, he went through kind of a phase of doing a, an almost J.K. Rowling-esque like decreeing what what different characters would be up to now or just like adding information oh, about them let's slow down a little bit okay he was doing it before <laughs> he, he pulled a he dumbledore was, no, he was doing it before jk and all, none of his were and he's like talking about people who live in somewhat of a real world not fucking hogwarts okay so it's not really comparable in my opinion and it, it really is far this is the I feel like this is the most I have offended you with. But it is important to point out because he is, for in all his books, Bryce Nellis is trying to talk about the real world. So when he, so it makes sense that he would update, you know, these characters to update to the real world. It doesn't make any fucking sense when J.K. Rowling does it because she's talking about like like a fancy land, like you know, fake Narnia or whatever. So. I just think like J.K. is, I think her. George Lucas, and, and I think it's like, I I, I, quite, I think that franchises, uh, I think I think like it is it, the lesson should be give up the franchise, like just say say goodbye and start over now and then, like that's the big thing. Like I think that media consolidation has created a culture of fear among artists and creators. So if you strike it big, why would you ever 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 do anything but that big thing again? But I think that leads to creative bankruptcy, and I think that J.K. Rowling is a prime example of a mixture of social media brain worms, creative bankruptcy, a fear of failure that doesn't make sense when you have more money than God, and uh, a weird desire to recapture some of that spark that made her feel so alive when Harry Potter was at its peak. Like, I think that's all Pottermore and all of that shit is. I think she is like... She, she's not feeling right. <laughs> I think, like I, I, when I see like what J.K. Rowling like puts online all the time, I'm like, she's just like I worry. Actually, like these Fantastic Beast movies are so fucking bad. <laughs> they're just they're so bad, and and she has full creative control, and it's like very clear that it's like you gotta you gotta move on, Joe. Like, please. But the, but the, but, but the beautiful thing is that because I've read so much Brett Easton Ellis, I know not to feel sorry for J.K. Rowling because she's all because she's rich and she's always had money she lied about that <laughs> she was no 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 Wait, that, was lied lie. that, was a, that was a lie that she was a lie that was she wasn't a waitress she wasn't writing on she a napkin might have been a waitress but she was not like almost homeless or anything like that she had family with money that she stayed with uh, and like her backstory that just came out like a couple of months ago that her backstory was not really like the dire so streets. she's like me she had a safety yes. net yeah she's like uh, okay well <laughs> Well, there goes that narrative. <laughs> Katie, again, I apologize for interrupting. You. No, My hatred for J.K. No, Rowling great. is just unending. And 
I only I only compare him to J.K. Rowling in the most um, surface level, <laughs> lighthearted way. Um, but so he he will from time or he would back in the day from time to time um, add info about his characters. So I just wanted to share with you guys a couple of the Patrick Bateman updates. Start with this one. I always thought that Patrick Bateman was a frustrated novelist. Hmm. Hmm. I, I don't really buy that one. I feel like. He exercised that. That's too easy. That, I, I, yeah, I feel like he exercised that demon on um, uh, Imperial Bedrooms, where it's a frustrated screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Like that's more of a Clay thing than a Patrick thing. I don't think Patrick. He's not. You know, I don't feel like he's curious. He's not a creative he's dude. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't have a curiosity to him. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to imagine Patrick like taking on any project. Yeah, like, right. Other than. Like disassembling like, a body. I just imagine him like going to like buying the most expensive, like agonizing over getting the right pen, the right stationery, all this stuff, getting a vintage, you know, t- Concordian typewriter and all this other shit, Put, getting a, you know, thousand to $5,000 writing desk, finding the perfect place to put it and then never using it and then sitting down for like two minutes and then just fucking destroying it because he's so angry because he can't get anything out. Maybe that's why he's a frustrated <laughs> novelist. <laughs> okay, yeah, here's the next one. This is from August of 2012. He had a big Fifty Shades of Grey thing. I don't know if you guys were aware, but he lobbied hard to write the Fifty Shades of Grey movie. I remember yeah. that. That was around the. That was right after the the canyons. Tor- uh, mm-hmm. Man, I'm glad Paul Schrader made First Reform because if if his last movie was the canyons, that would have been a drag. Uh, God, the canyon sucks. Um, okay, so, so at the time that that he was pushing to write um, Fifty Shades of Grey, he was talking a lot about pa- Patrick Bateman in relation to Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, uh, so here's one of his, I think, more bizarre proclamations on that topic: Fifty Shades of Grey slash AP. If you don't get that Jean is Anna and Patrick is Christian, then you don't get that Bateman is a helpless romantic. Wait, wait, wait. So, well, wait Christian is, is Gina? The secretary. Uh, it, no, if you don't get that Jean is Anna. Oh, so Jean, okay, the yeah, secretary, yeah, right. is Anna. The student. And Patrick, and Patrick is Christian. Then you don't get that Bateman is a helpless romantic. That's so funny. Some of this stuff, it feels like he's just saying. You know, I, like, like it has no relation. He's trolling, but I also think it's true. I also think he is in love with Jean. So I think that's a fair. But he, he doesn't I think Patrick loves, I think. I think what's interesting about the Patrick Gina relate uh, Jeannie relationship in the book is that yeah I mean it she is like the only character that Patrick has intimate feelings for and and that's why he keeps his distance and I don't think he tells himself he's afraid he's gonna kill her but I don't think that's true I don't think he has I mean I I think that um I think he's he's you know I think it's interesting that that BEE sees him as like a hopeless romantic. I uh, that that's that's Twitter, but I do I do see the idea that the sadistic billionaire uh, would fall in love with like the the like you know the, the lesser woman, mousy. yeah, the mousy lady. I mean, because he looks at honestly, he looks at her like a pet, and that's why I don't. But but then again, I guess that's sort of what uh, God. I, I did see Fifty Shades of Grey in theaters. <laughs> I guess that is what. Uh, what's his name? Christian thought of uh, the Anastasia, the, the Don Johnson's daughter. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, this tweet would make a lot more sense to me if instead of ending with then you don't get that Bateman is a helpless romantic, it ended with then you don't get that Christian is a psychopath. Yes, yeah. Like that scans a lot more. <laughs> Fifty Shades, by the um, way, like I, I didn't see the other two movies. I, I spared myself, but um, I can't believe they happened. <laughs> like just like just the fact that like there was an entire trilogy of those movies uh, is is a dark miracle of badness, like truly remarkable. Yeah, it really is. Um, oh, one more thing I wanted to say since we got on the topic of Gene is just that I think it is hilarious that for this entire, for the majority of the book, every time Patrick mentions Gene, he says, Gene, my secretary who is in love with me. Like he says yes. it every time. Like <laughs> yep. we're not going to remember who she is. <laughs> and then he pivots, he pivots really quickly towards the end from my secretary who is in love with me to like, Ugh, I guess yeah, I'll just marry her. Yeah, my secretary who I'll probably marry someday. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, his use of um, you know, there's like a lot of mnemonics too. When he just you know, it, it's almost as if like he forgets who these people are and just well, needs to like a, use like that's some sort of thing in the book. Like they're always forgetting yeah. each other. They're always like confusing each other mm -hmm. with one another because all dress the same and look the same, get have the same haircut, wear the same glasses. Like that's a running uh, theme in the novel. Yeah. Yeah. And that since earlier you asked, like, if I think that there's a murder a cover up for Patrick's murders and then I kind of never really answered. I think a, a big factor covering up Patrick's murders for him is that nobody knows who anybody is. And like every anytime that there's a murder, there are like 20 people who are like, oh, I was yes. having dinner with Patrick Bateman <laughs> that night because they just don't remember who's who. That's funny. The idea that like they just they're so. They've lost their own identities and have just become like just money creatures that it wouldn't even they wouldn't even notice that it, yeah they can't even tell their own colleagues or friends apart. I love that. Uh, yeah, that's a great. That's a, I I like that a lot. Um, I used to like I remember like for a while I had this weird theory that like some of the murders are real but most of them weren't. Like he killed like one or two people and then I thought about that and I'm like that's stupid. I gave that up real <laughs> fast. Uh, <laughs> There is, I do think that there is at least one part of one murder that doesn't happen, but I do think the murders as a whole are real. But you remember when he reaches down a girl's throat, like prolapses it, and then tears her abdomen open with his bare hands? I mean, that's like a Mortal Kombat fatality. Happen. Yeah, like, yeah. Sub Zero wins. That's not, no humans can't do that. Like, right. So he either like lives in a cartoon universe or that one did not happen. It's very, it's very um, McAvoy and Split or something like too, too superhuman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I guess if vampires exist in the Brad Easton Ellis universe <laughs> and they're all in one universe because they all share characters, so maybe, maybe Patrick's a vampire and yeah, it just never awesome. comes up. That's the M Night Shyamalan <laughs> um, remake. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, this series is my my favorite. Uh, on November 3rd, 2012, he says, Patrick Bateman is pissed that Scott Disick didn't invite him to his American Psycho Halloween party in Las Vegas this year. SD, watch out. And then he follows that up with, since Patrick Bateman is dating Lana Del Rey, it was supposed to be a fun Halloween in Vegas until Scott Disick messed it up. What a tool. <laughs> I, I think that's Brett saying he's mad he didn't get invited. I, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think this sounds like a bunch of like rich guys in West Hollywood getting pissy at each other on the internet. <laughs> like, I do think that um you know, I wonder if he retreats into Patrick now and then, like just a like like as a coping well, mechanism. Like I don't he had to kill he killed Patrick. That's he right. He's 
But around this time on Twitter, he also said, um, lately, Patrick Bateman's been whispering to me at night, you thought you got rid of me, oh. you asshole, but I'm still here. So, which seems like not ge uh, genuine and seems like a thing to say on Twitter to get attention. But or, No, but like, the, yeah. but, you know, he does let ideas for novels gestate for years. And I think I can't imagine him not when he saw Trump get elected president he didn't think all right it's time to get back in the saddle it's time for patrick bateman to come back yeah because maybe. we aren't we are in like a bad remake of the 80s anyway like that's all the 20 teens are is like right now we're in like the pc era of the late 80s like it's the same thing like where everyone's getting like nothing like the 80s were uh just we were terrified of annihilation we were constantly getting mad at each other for using Scared the wrong words Russia. and rich I'm scared about Russia. The world was, you know, the 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 world was constantly on the brink of nuclear an annihilation. Reagan was destroying all of the progress of the Carter administration to to you know in the same way that John Bolton is fucking up everything in Iran that Obama did. The one good thing Obama did was uh, warm up relations with them, and uh, that's now down the toilet. So like. We are in like a redux of the. It's not just like all of the '80s pop nostalgia shit that's happening. Like we truly are, like economically, culturally, uh, and, and as a civilization, like we are back. So hey, call, call up Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I've got just two more little ones to share. Uh, this is from November fifteenth, two thousand twelve. Patrick Bateman is now listening to the last Wilco record. I don't know. I don't know no. about this. Sweets aren't always he's good. A, <laughs> like these are no. Like, no. A Wilco guy. Like he would think they're too grungy and too loud. He would think Wilco. Like he is much more of a pop guy. He's a much more of a pop yeah. guy than Wilco. I just think these are trolls. These are. I believe yeah. these are trolls. I do. I don't <laughs> think he actually would think that Patrick Bateman would ever date Lana Del Rey. And that's stupid. Like he. Like he's really <laughs> dumb. Like. <laughs> Well, I just want to be clear. It was Lana Del Rey and not Lana oh. Del Rey. Oh, the, the Twitter. Twitter poster. Yeah. Why did I? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that the majority of his entire existence on Twitter was just constant trolling. Um, really, the only time that I felt he was genuine on Twitter, Twitter was near the end of his time there when um, he didn't get the Fifty Shades job, he seemed like very genuinely distraught. <laughs> it, was, it was really touching, honestly. Like, I think he put a lot of his, a lot of hope into that. Do you think he's becoming Sorry. a softie? No, I think that he's always been um, <laughs> capable of deep self-pity. <laughs> and that, that's, that's one example of that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Uh, and then I've got one final one final tweet to go out on. Uh, Patrick Bateman is a Libra. The most useless, <laughs> the most useless possible tweet about Patrick yeah, Bateman. You, they're not into horoscopes. Come on. When are Libras he, born? He I'm, I'm like... Patrick Bateman does not care about his, <laughs> his sign. I could imagine like a chapter where he gets really into it because he murders uh, a hippie girl. But other than that, I don't think he really cares about his sign. I do see him possibly like reading something about the 
the Japanese equivalent of it, which is blood type, and all these Wall Street guys <laughs> suddenly like talking about they watch like a Marie Marie Kondo show, and now they are talking about who has the best, you know, the most alpha blood type between them. Wait, is that that's like a real thing in Japanese culture? People talk about blood like horoscopes, yeah, yeah, like I'm a type yeah. O, I'm a type it's C, a, like it's a, it's a one. Huh. It's, yeah, yeah. So instead of horoscopes, they have blood type, and that's how. Old. That's fascinating. Yeah, you play video, you play yeah. RPGs where you've had to select your blood type before, right? I'm sure you have. Like that's Oh, that's yeah. why. Yeah, like like uh like in Persona and shit. Yeah. That's so strange. That maybe it would be a little too on the nose, but I do think that uh a Patrick Bateman whose friends are all obsessed with blood type, that could lead into a great scene of him like, you know, slitting Paul Allen's neck and yes. then drinking his yes. blood or whatever. <laughs> Trying to get the right blood type. He's so embarrassed because he's type of B, B or whatever and he's like pissed off. It's like the, the card scene. It's like the card scene and everybody shares their yeah. blood type and Patrick has the worst one. <laughs> and so he decides yeah, to kill yeah. the guy with the best one. If it was if it was Japanese psycho, the problem is he wouldn't even have time to kill his coworkers. He's just like they're just always together. You how'd you even get get away? Like we'll find out. We'll find out when you write it. It's <laughs> not generate a series of different coming American never. Psycho. <laughs> Japanese psycho. Yeah. All right, guys. So let's do it. I want to rate this book on a scale of one to five. If you want to choose your own scale, you may. I'm going to write it. I'm going to rate it on a scale of one to five vagina rats. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a tough man. So like, is it, the, the, more, the more vagina rats are worse though, right? So wouldn't well, it be five vagina Patrick. rats? Because, um, oh, okay. You're Patrick in this scenario. Yeah, oh, so see. more is good. <laughs> I, the first time I read this, book i it was my least favorite book i had ever read in my life and i gave it one vagina rat you powered through though you finished i did it. i powered through the one the one thing that i would say about it after i read it is like there's something compelling about it like yeah. i hate it on every on every level i hate it but there for some reason it keeps you going i never finish books i hate like i kind of am like in in I awe. usually don't <laughs> yeah, this one this one was an outlier it's like the only book i've ever managed to read the whole thing and then give once like give one star on goodreads it was like my only one star on goodreads because normally i would just quit um but i'm a different person now it's a different world <laughs> trump is president um the the brutal murders i saw them coming more so they didn't get me down as much as they got me down the first time and i did see that this book uh has a sense of humor to it and a sense of pathos to it that i missed the first time through and i'm giving it three vagina rats wow scale i regret settling on all right I, I, hopefully we can get <laughs> you right. up to four or five maybe next time all right so All right. I, mean, I think it's clear. I rate this, you know, five missing co-eds out of five. Okay. Like I, I love this book. It's my, one of my favorite, if not my favorite book of all time. Love it. Yeah. I, um, I give this, uh, I definitely also, uh, give this, uh, five, five, uh, five reservations at Dorsey oh, out oh, of yeah. five. It's, 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 a, uh, it's, it's, um, look, you know, Per se is, I guess, now the new Dorcia, and and they they got a, a one star review in the New York Times. So like now is the time to get in, and uh, and and experience all of the lobster. I'm a, you know, look <laughs> when when last time L came to L.A., 
he he exclusively went on a burger tour and like he found like th- like three and I went to that and I ended up going to that bur- one of the burger places. Um, the, the oh, fuck I'm already forgetting the name. Do you remember the uh, name of the awesome like burger place you recommended? Mellow Burger, something like that. Like Mega Burger. I don't know. It was it was awesome. Anyway, uh, I don't know why it's I brought next that. To the, up, it's actually. next to the Murder Hotel. It's right next to them in the shadow Whoa. of the Murder I don't, Hotel. Yeah. yeah. The, the oh downtown has a bunch of like yeah these these uh weird like just old um they were like transient hotels that are like half apartment buildings half like people just kind of stay there because they have to like it's cheap and like if it, it, it'd be that or homelessness like it's 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 uh and yeah a couple murder hotels <laughs> um since you brought up per se i want to share a little anecdote um i have one brother who's crazy rich he's a corporate lawyer in manhattan um oh so does he want to finance our short mm-hmm. films so, well i think now we see why you don't like american psycho it's complicated um <laughs> i have so i have four siblings um one of them is crazy rich um and he one year as a flex, he took all four of his siblings to Per Se for Thanksgiving. Um, and I was just getting into Brady Stanellis for the first time. And while we were all at our table, my brother was was talking about how it's the best restaurant in New York. And I was like, actually, Per Se is better. And he said, what? What did you say? And I was like, no, nothing. And he was, But he was like really pissed at me uh, for saying that. So then I had to be like, it's not a real restaurant. It's a restaurant from a book. American <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's a very that's a that's a very Bateman moment, actually. He's he's not totally on Bateman. <laughs> the big question is how does he feel? How does he feel about uh, sponsoring all of our podcasts? That's that's the the only the only good billionaire is one giving us money, as I've always said. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think he's a billionaire. I think he's merely a millionaire. Uh-huh. So <laughs> that changes me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> so uh, we've rated our books. So now our books, the one book, the only book we talked about. Um, so now I want to give our listeners an opportunity to uh, balance their literary diet with something that is by a man or woman who is not Brady Stanellis. Um, so every episode I recommend a book and I ask my guests to do the same and I try to only recommend books that are not by white men, but my guests can recommend whatever they want. Um, my recommendation for today is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which I think re- recently overtook Generation X by Douglas Copeland as my favorite novel wow. of all time. I'm usually not very patient with books that are like very dense, um, but this one is just so perfect and so good that even my dumb, internet rotted millennial brain was willing to do the work to get all the way through it. Uh, I love magic realism. I love multifamily dramas and I love books about misery and this book has all of that. So 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez is my suggestion. Uh, you guys, would you like to recommend a book? Yeah, I'll start uh, with Devil in a Blue Dress by Walter Mosley. Uh, Walter Mosley, fantastic crime novelist, one of the few one of the few writers of black private detective stories, uh, specifically in the noir genre. Uh, it was a there was a movie with Denzel that was also really good. But 
Devil in a Blue Dress launched a series about this character that I really like named Easy Rollins. And he's this guy who's just like let go from a factory in 1948 after World War II. Uh, you know, he's treated like shit because he's black. He lives in Watts. But he's a he he's always he's kind of like a, a, a Sherlock Holmes type character. He finds killers. He finds a. Uh, racial corruption he finds uh, sorry he finds uh, uh, a corruption involving race and grift and big money and 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 these are all stories that are very pulpy but also very much la stories so i i enjoy them quite a lot there's uh devil in a blue dress red death white butterfly and black betty yeah i mean there's like 40 of them but those are like the first but then he also has um there's another character i really like of his uh and and uh, da, 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 why am I blanking out? Oh, Leonin McGill, right? So I've only read one of these books, and it was recently. It was called The Long Fall, and that was a bit more of a modern story. And uh, but it's it, what I really like about Mosley's writing is that he, good crime writers, especially fiction, uh, they they write in an almost easy style. Like Elmore Leonard, another writer who uh, is kind of like a he's like a white contemporary to uh, Mosley. I guess he guess he just died recently, but the the dialogue is always super snappy. The stories are always pulpy and fun, and they're not message books, but they have messages. And maybe that's when Brady Snellis complains about too many messages. Like I get why people complain about preachiness. Like I think that there is a lack of subtlety uh, in terms of how fiction has tackled the Trump era over the last few years. Uh, I think that's an understatement. I think like when the Republicans make fun of like people saying orange man bad, I'm like, yeah, it is like that is what they're saying. Like they're just saying orange man bad a bunch. Like there isn't a lot of subtlety in the systems that created the world we're in now. And by examining uh, post-World War II in the Easy Rollins books, it's a really cool look at L.A. It's a really honest look at how sleazy the LAPD is, you know, Uh, and a lot of these like, um, you know, pulpy, noirish stories you have a. you know, a guy like, um, why am I blanking out on his name? I just watched The Long Goodbye. Uh, the, the the character from all of those, um, the Dashiell Hammett stories. Uh, Mar- Marlowe? Yeah, Philip Marlowe, right. So Philip Marlowe gets treated like crap by cops, but like Easy Rollins is like openly discriminated against. And it's like, it just, just by that being a thing that happens, like the story beats are very similar in these books, but by experiencing it through, you know, a similar time period and a similar storytelling tile style, but with like a decidedly different series of characters, the the books really elevate themselves. They're not by, I'm, I'm underselling it because the way I'm describing these books almost make it sound like it's just like, this is, these are crime novels with a black character. That's not what I'm trying to say. Like they kind of go above and beyond it, recreating post-war LA in a way that uh, very few stories do. So yeah, check those out. And, uh, all right, I'm definitely gonna. And that Walter sounds great. Leslie is a good Marxist, so don't don't forget that. Oh, he's our guy. Yeah, I didn't realize guy. that. He's That's awesome. Nice. <laughs> right. um, I will recommend a nonfiction um, book. It's actually more of a collection of essays. But if you're a fan of Brett Easton Ellis's podcast, I think this is a pretty essential book to read. It's called Fem Suck USA by Eileen Jones, who is um, currently Jacobin's film reviewer. You may know her from upsetting the internet by saying she didn't like Mr. Rogers when she was a kid. <gasps> um, I agree with that. I didn't like him either. Um, but her <laughs> is basically her film reviews, and they're just so 
witty, like just biting, scathing reviews of all the of the death of Hollywood. Basically, that's happened in the past 10 to 15 years. Um, and she's been writing about this decline for a while, the same that way that Brett has written and talked about on the show. So I think it's a good companion piece for fans of Brett's film reviews. All right, guys, we did it. It was a harrowing journey, but we made it. We pulled it uh, off. You, yeah. Um, this is going to be coming out in late March or early April. Do you guys have anything you would like to yes. plug? Patreon.com slash struggle session. Please uh, check us That's out. It. Subscribe. We got tons and tons of good stuff there. We're going to have an episode. Uh, she doesn't know yet. We're going to have Katie on the next time we talk about Sabra <gasps> Easton Ellis on the show. That's the plan. Oh. My God, you've been invited, guys! I'm so yes. excited. Or conscripted. <laughs> yeah, but we already have a, we already have an episode about um, less than zero and imperial bedrooms, American Psycho. We did an episode on that. We have tons and tons of bonus episodes. So please subscribe to us on Patreon because it lets us do more of these, you know, deep dives uh, on the show. Yeah, uh, definitely subscribe to their Patreon. I recently subscribed because I had to get access to that American Psycho episode, and it is worth the money. Um, there are a lot of podcasts about like a couple pretty funny dudes sitting around talking about pop culture, but this one is like <laughs> this one is like so clearly oh, a cut above so the vast majority. What, yeah, that's, that's very kind of you. What 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 I what you know? I, I'm only speaking for myself and not for Leslie or Jack. But what I pride struggle session on that I think a lot of like, you know, is missing from a lot of the, the, the uh, you know, the new wave of like cultural analysis hangout shows. What I pride struggle session on is, is that I think that it comes from a place of not trying to like, like we, we love this shit. We really do. Like it's all, is pop culture bad? Is America bad? Yeah, it is. But like, uh, you know, we can't help ourselves. We love movies. We love TV. You know, we love TV. We love trash literature. We, we love it all. And like, it comes, it doesn't come from a place of trying to dissect culture just to say it sucks and make people feel bad. Like, I do think that our show actually has an optimism that isn't on a lot of these. And we do have our hot takes. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I do think there is like a, um, there's a there's a there's a funness that we have and and I, I i i'm proud of the show for for doing that yeah the other thing i really appreciate about your show is that uh so many um humorous podcasts will kind of devolve into uh just kind of riffs on riffs on riffs on like terrible bits that get very exhausting to listen to um but you guys like are pretty on topic and like having an intelligent conversation that is still like really funny and really entertaining instead of like devolving into 20 minutes about like balls or whatever i mean balls I are great I, but the truth I, is, I, I is gotta that be honest, i don't <laughs> don't let jdb do any of his dick and balls jokes he has been begging for years i'm bad don't let him i don't yeah. let jack do any of his singing don't let him that do he does on jack air <laughs> leslie is the only one who's never made a sex joke ever he's a rated g man uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, all right you guys thank you so much for being here oh this thanks so phenomenal. much it was a lot of fun You can follow me on Twitter at Katie L. Wright. Follow the show at Brett Easton Pop.
pod and check out some of our amazing brother and sister podcasts on the Major Cast Network by going to majorcastsnetwork.com.